morning, folks. Honored to be here. Bonfire series, Mark chapter 2, our subject this morning. Uh, but we'll start off a little differently. We're going to go through five questions about Mark chapter 1 first. And that'll get us warmed up. It'll be an immersive experience, sort of like putting on 3D glasses, but better than The Force Awakens. Five questions on chapter 1, then we'll seamlessly transition to Mark 2, where there's going to be a skylight, all right? Going to be huge, going to be good, and guys in the sound booth, actually, let's give them a hand. These guys worked hard all morning on my horrible slides, so thank you. Uh, cue up that opening question. Let's get rolling here. What we want to do when we experience uh, study of the scripture is ask a sequence of just basic questions. What's the writer doing? Who's the writer uh, addressing? And what's going on in the larger storyline? So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to start by saying you're probably aware that there's four different Gospels, all addressed to different audiences, same biographical and theological subject matter, but addressed to different crowds, different occasions. A lot of scholars argue that Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest, is probably the first one written, and probably written to a, a group of believers in a big city like Rome, where it's difficult to be a, a disciple, difficult to be a follower of Jesus. So Mark's writing an intense and exciting and a joyful story to encourage people to keep following the Messiah, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. Mark's reminding the people of the basic lineaments of the story of their lives. Okay? So when we come to the opening line of the book, we want to ask, what's Mark doing and why? And of course, it's probably a wise question to ask about any work of literature, but what's the... What's the first word and why does it matter? Opening sentence, Mark's gospel, listen close because it says this. And as I'm reading, listen for the first principal word. All right. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, I hope you caught that because it's going to be on the midterm, about October. First word, beginning reminds us of what earlier story in the scriptures. Think about it. I'll give you a hint. It's close to the outset of the entire Bible. It's a book that starts with G. In the? Exactly. In the beginning. Mark's first words and John, the fourth of the Gospels to be written, does the same thing. Takes us back to the very outset of the story. When you see beginning in Mark's Gospel, you immediately reflex back as a first century reader to, in the beginning, the story of Genesis, where everybody knows what happened. God creates the entire universe. When Genesis 1 says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's shorthand for absolutely everything that you can see in the universe. How does God do it? Simply by talking just says stuff, and it happens. Genesis gives you confidence, then, in the character, in the power, in the kingship, in the authority of God. God says things, and it happens. If you're a parent, imagine that kind of power. Clean your room, and it was cleaned. Let go of thy sister's hair, and there was peace and harmony. Imagine that kind of power. Genesis 1 gives us that kind of confidence in the God who says things and makes it happen. Pastor Mark just talked about poetry. God's a poet, and when he speaks, worlds happen. Therefore, 
when Mark chapter 1 uses that same word, beginning, we recognize this is huge. This is momentous. This is a story that's as big as creation itself because it's a story about recreation. Everything God does is good. Sometimes people make things go wrong. The gospel narrative sets it right. That's why Mark starts off with this key word, beginning. And this is what launches us into his narrative. Question two, if you'd be so kind there, boys. Now, right after this opening prose segment, Mark introduces us to these two characters. Two characters that set the stage for the drama to come. The first is a long-dead poet named Isaiah. And Isaiah gets the first spoken word in Mark's gospel. See, 700 years before the story that Mark's telling takes place, Isaiah the prophet comes and he tells the beleaguered, discouraged, in-captivity people of Israel, tells them something's going to happen. God's going to do something. He's going to build a highway and he's going to take you home. God's going to create an event, Isaiah says to the people of Israel, that's equivalent to a new exodus. Remember the exodus event? People of Israel coming up out of Egypt. Isaiah says something just as big is going to happen. You're going to be released from captivity, and you're going to be brought back to experience the fullness of God's presence. That's why Mark starts with this quotation from the heart of the book of Isaiah. Right after Isaiah's words, then, we hear the words of another prophet, except in the context of Mark's gospel, this prophet is very much alive and very well and is hollering to all who come near the shores of the River Jordan that get ready because somebody's coming who's going to inaugurate this new Exodus experience. That's why John, the second principal character in Mark's gospel, is baptizing in the River Jordan. Anybody that comes and is willing to be baptized makes the acknowledgement publicly that I'm unclean and I need to be cleansed somehow. This is bigger than me. I'm guilty. I've messed up. Bad browsing history. Whatever it is, I'm unclean and I need to be cleansed. And John says, when you undergo the rites of baptism, what happens is you're acknowledging that need for cleansing and be ready because somebody's coming really soon. Somebody who's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie their Nike Air sandals. Someone's coming, bigger than me, and you're going to get baptized in more than just water. So, be prepared. Between Isaiah and John, the first two principal characters in Mark's gospel, we get this heightened sense of anticipation. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus comes and goes through those waters of baptism. Any experience you go through, Jesus says, I'll go through first. I'm always going to be with you. I'll go through these waters of baptism. And at that moment, of course, God speaks and says, this is my son. I love him. And I'm proud of him. And of course, God says that to every follower of Jesus who goes through the same ritual. Between Isaiah, John, and then the baptism of Jesus, we have this great preparation for the drama that's about to unfold. Now, listen close. Third question, if you don't mind. To me, it's interesting. Right after Jesus goes through these waters of baptism, we read that he's right away driven into the wilderness 
for a test or for a confrontation. You glance through some of the other Gospels, Matthew, for example, or, or Luke, they give this temptation scene a fair bit of press. You meet the tempter, the Satan figure. You meet the accuser, you hear the words, and there's a lengthy dialogue that unfolds before you. Mark focuses on something else. The spatial setting, the name of the tempter, and the victory that's overcome. Now, why would Mark do this? I think if you read the commentators, they would suggest that what Mark is up to is this. He wants you to go back in your mind to an earlier occasion in the scriptures. You know how, like, in the beginning, takes you back to Genesis chapter 1? Well, same idea here. This little scene, uh, halfway through chapter 1, takes us back into the garden where there was a snake and there was a conversation, and the snake was trying to do something to the human characters in that drama in Genesis chapter 3. What was the snake trying to do? It was trying to convince the human participants that, you know what, God's word, it's optional. You, you can do it on your own. Did God really say? That's what the snake, who we probably are going to intuit, is an early form of this Satan character that we now have in fullness in Mark chapter 1. I have a feeling that the snake is trying to deflect the human actors from the God who speaks. He is a shalom disturber, as it were, trying to uh, disrupt concentration and focus. The one thing that you can be sure about in Genesis 1 is, as we've already alluded to, God speaks and things happen. The snake is trying to deflect attention from the God who speaks. That's why the snake asks this question. Does God really talk? I mean, come on. You can do things on your own. In fact, you can be self-autonomous. You don't really need God's involvement. You can live independent of God's word. That's what the snake's trying to do way back in Genesis 3. And we get the sense in Mark chapter 1 that that same tableau is being revisited. Huge difference though. All right? And listen to me. Huge difference. The snake is successful in Genesis 3. Not so in Mark chapter 1. Because we're dealing with a superhero. Somebody who's able to transcend all human errors. We're taken back to the garden of failure. And it's being transformed into this wilderness of success. That's why Mark gives key attention to this scene in the wilderness. Where the Satan figure is not successful. To my mind, it's no accident that you go directly from this confrontation in the wilderness to then the first words of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Literary critics tell us, pay attention. Always pay attention to the first words of a major character in a work of literature or a movie or whatever it is, because it's often a defining moment of character. Give us the next uh, slide, if you don't mind, folks. First words. First words of the Messiah, and this is it. It's going to resonate throughout the gospel narrative. And Jesus says this. Starts with, time's up. That's it. Ever since Genesis 3, we've been waiting for the arrival of a messianic figure. Why Genesis 3? That same text we've been talking about, the failure in the garden. Because in that very narrative, what we have is God's guarantee. God says to the snake, I am well aware of what you've done. 
deceived uh, the man and his wife, and you're cursed to crawl on your belly and eat dust, and here's what's going to happen, God says, as early as Genesis 3. I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, between her kids, her descendants, her lineage, and your offspring. There's going to be this hostility. You're going to bite the heel that he, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. I want you to think about that. Be honest with me. What would you rather have? Your heel bitten or your head crushed? Of course, to bite the heel in Hebrew is figurative for deception. And here's the long story of humanity unfolding in really one sentence. There's going to be a history of deception. The snake's always going to be deceiving, always going to be attempting to deflect. But at some point, what we're going to have is this. A decisive head crush. And even the NIV at this point translates the offspring as a capital uppercase offspring. And that's not a bad translation because early interpreters saw that as a messianic anticipation. Foreshadowing of the arrival of some hero who's going to come and set you free from being snake-bitten. When Jesus says, time's up, that took thousands of years, but now those days of snake-biting are over. So get ready, because the kingdom of God, that is a radically new reality, a whole different way to live and a whole different set of beliefs, are at hand. What he's saying is they're right here, and in fact, when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the kingdom. Time's up, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the good news. Three things, repent, believe, good news. Don't make the same mistake I did. I used to think repent was sort of a one-time thing, you know? You want to get saved, you recognize, my life's a mess, I need to come to the Lord. So I'm going to stop going to discotheques or buying Black Sabbath albums or, you know, whatever the issues are. You do that once and then it's, it's, it's all good. What I didn't realize is that verb, repent, and for all you Greek scholars out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's present, it's active, and it's ongoing. You keep doing it. You keep repenting until you don't need to anymore. We've got some seniors. Yeah, amen is right. We've got some seniors out here, and you know the deal. I'm shouting. I'm going to tone that down. It's my New Year's resolution. No more shrieking, gesticulating. You keep repenting. And you keep believing as well. Belief is not a one-time thing. You keep struggling and believing and asking and inviting God to be real in your life. You repent and you believe you have faith, you have trust. Now, some of the atheists are a bit misleading here. They tell you the story that uh, faith or belief is just this blind leap. That's not exactly true. It's a leap, but... Sometimes you may be walking in the darkness, but other times you know full well what's going on. There's darkness, but there's a, a constant in that darkness. And how do I know this? Because when I was a little boy, I grew up in this house. And at the side of the house was this tree. And my parents said to me, look, don't, don't climb it. 
Oh, don't get up on the roof. You're not going to like it. Nothing good up there. Don't climb the tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. You know, it just it looks so exciting. Yeah, there's plenty of other trees in the forest of our ancestral estate, but no. What did I do? Naturally. I don't know where you're at with the doctrine of original sin, but I think it's true because I climbed up that tree and went onto the roof of our family house. Uh, and I discovered something on that day. I discovered that I'm really scared of heights. And I'm laying down, crying. And, you know, this, is, this, is, this is just, uh, this, this is terrible. Remember John talking about a, uh, a new exodus at the beginning of Mark's gospel? That's what an exodus is. You're in slavery or you're in a predicament more often than not that's of your own making. And then you ask God to come and rescue you from the problems that you've created for yourself in the first place. I'm on this roof and I'm crying and I'm scared and I'm regretting a lot of bad decisions when I heard a voice that was whispering I'll catch you. There was this guy who was, well, he was my dad with uh, this, um, <laughs> you know those co-op kind of mesh hats long before they came back and now they're retro and cool back then, they were your dad's hats. Why was he whispering? Uh, because, because I had this mom, you know, with sort of the 70s perm thing happening, she was inside and I think her heart would have been broken at the fact that she'd raised a rebellious son of iniquity. Faith is not this blind experiment, cha-ching at the casino, rolling the dice, hoping you get lucky. No, it's, it's this, and listen close. You make a decision on the relative reliability of the character who gives you that invitation to jump. My dad's a big guy, fairly strong. I trusted him. I don't remember jumping, but obviously I did without shouting, because we wouldn't be here today. I'll catch you. Your eyes, frankly, are wide open. They may be full of tears. You may have issues, but you make a decision based on the character of the one who issues the invitation. Time's up. The kingdom of God, a whole new way of living, of thinking, of acting is at hand. So you need to turn around. You need to metanoia, change your mind. You need to believe, that is jump, that is embrace something amazing for your life. You need to believe the good news. You need to believe the gospel. And that's a word that's full of the Hebrew scriptures. Good news. Glance through the book of Isaiah and you'll discover all sorts of insights to this term, good news. If you're being harassed by a bully relentlessly and somebody comes and tells you, I have vanquished that bully, when you hear it, that's good news. If you have a tendency to collect credit cards and use them to buy things that you don't really need and generate a whole heap of debt, and somebody comes and says, I shouldn't have done this, but I paid your debts for you. 
So smarten up and be responsible. When you hear that, that's, that's good news. If you're in jail, some of you at home, uh, if you're in prison or captivity and somebody comes and says, you can go free because somebody else is going to serve your time for you, when you hear that, that's good news. Time's up, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is now right here in front of you, and you're looking at him. So keep changing course when you drift astray. Stay on point. Keep embracing the good news that God has something remarkable for you today. That's what Jesus says. That's his message. And if you're a bunch of clappers, then clap, because that's, that's good stuff. Uh, next question. And the last of our five. Scroll through the opening sequence of Mark's gospel. Last half of the chapter, you see certain things happening. You see a whole lot of confrontations with demons. And you see examples of healing. A few things, predominantly. So what's up with that? We already had the Satan figure making an appearance in chapter 1, and you got the feeling that the Satan figure is going to be around for a while, but that figure's time is limited. Mark chapter 1, you're introduced to all kinds of demons. And just as a, as a simple reader, opening Mark's gospel for the first time, I, I get the feeling that these demons are uh, not altogether... I, wasn't gonna, I was going to say bright, but that's kind of mean. You shouldn't say mean things about people. But The demons seem a bit insecure, constantly screaming, it's like they recognize their time is up. Somebody's come along who's going to make their lives very inconvenient, very uncomfortable, and they're not happy about it, and it's like they're pulling out all the stops. You get these confrontations with powers of darkness in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, suggesting that the demons are well aware that their shelf life is limited. Their best before date has been reached. You also see all these healings. Mother-in-laws, sick, can't make you dinner, they get healed. Lepers, cleansed. What's up with that? Speaking of Isaiah, one of my great heroes, it's all forecast in that great prophetic scroll. You're going to know that the anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means, you're going to know that the Messiah has come upon you when the lame walk, when the blind see. When someone goes along proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, good news to the prisoner at the day of release for the captives. These are going to be signals and signs and directives that the Messiah has come. They're not random. They're not arbitrary. They point to the arrival of someone, and that someone's going to set you free. I'm not saying those events aren't significant in themselves, but they point. They point to the Messiah the arrival of this long-awaited superpower. That's why the rest of Mark unfolds with confrontations with these powers of darkness and with these demons, with these encounters, with these healings. They're all pointers to the arrival of the Messiah who will crush the head of the snake and who will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, chapter 2. Get ready. This is going to go through the roof, all right? So, buckle up. It's going to be huge. Uh, next slide, Mark chapter 2. Let's see what happens. Jesus re uh, returned to Capernaum. Kind of a dark place in the north. Not popular. 
I had to go to Hillsborough the other day. It's way better than Capernaum, trust me. A number of, these are really villages, frankly, but they're on Jesus' itinerary, and Capernaum's a big one. He went back there after a few days, after a few days after some of these healings and these confrontations with demons that we've been talking about, and it was reported that he was at home, and so many people gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, just a sold-out crowd. Last time I was at MWC on a Friday night, this place was packed. It was Wren Collective, there was lighthouses everywhere, and and, and Irish people, and I was sitting in the atrium, and this place was seething, and the same thing's happening in Capernaum, Mark chapter 2. Can't get a seat. Sold out. And what's Jesus doing? He's speaking the word to them, the logos, the idea. And that's probably pretty easy to figure out. You look at lines that Jesus has already said, time's up, turn around, keep embracing the good news, because this will set you free. Speaking the word to them as you glance through the rest of Mark and the other Gospels, you get a flavor of the kinds of things Jesus did and the kinds of stories that he told. And you can see why the place would be sold out, because you know people would be interested in a story, for example, about this dad who was way too generous and indulgent with his kids. See, that's why I never give my kids anything. I, uh, you know, I read the Gospels and I see, yikes, this is dangerous. There was this dad, way too generous, and he had two sons, and guess what the entitled video game playing younger one came and did? He said, Dad, kind of wish you were dead. Can't really say that openly and honestly, but can you give me my share of the inheritance now? You know what that kid deserved? A timeout. <laughs> Five and a game. Yeah. <laughs> Lost my train of thought. That was an insolent request. And what I can't believe about this story is that the dad gave it to him. He gave him the money. Perhaps he said, use it wisely. Invest in stocks that won't tank. I'm not sure what he said were his parting words, but that's not what the kid did with the money. He went away and he squandered it in we got some young people, so I'm going to be careful, but I'm, I'll tell you this, kids. All you kids out there, he was doing things that were worse than watching TV shows like The Sweet Life on Deck. Even worse than that, that's what this young fellow did until there was an economic downturn. Famine came, his money dried up, and so did all of his new relationships on Twitbook. No one was there when he ran out of money and in reduced circumstances, this guy was forced to feed the pigs, the only way he could survive. And you know you're hungry when you're carrying a bucket of pig slop and it looks and smells really good, and he came to his senses and said, I am a loser. What am I doing? My dad's got employees everywhere, and all of them live better than this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say, Dad, I'm sorry, man. I'm not worthy, not worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hired servant. I'd rather live on the outskirts of your kingdom than anywhere else. I don't deserve it. And as he was walking home, you know what? He saw in the distance that his dad had actually been walking toward him. And he grabbed him and he embraced him. Gave him a robe and a ring and said, come on home. And people would be listening to this in Capernaum 
in Mark chapter 2 as Jesus is telling them the story of what God's done for all of them. And I'm guessing that they're all thinking, you know what, that's me. That's my testimony. God's been generous, given me good things, and more often than not, I've not said thank you, squandered it, thrown it away, yet here's God giving me a second chance. And I'm guessing that's why the crowd is there, standing room only, you can't get in, and there's not a seat in the house. Next line. Listen close, because here's what happens. Because all of a sudden, a group came. You know, if you've got a burden or you're carrying something, you sometimes go a little uh, slower, you know, like strollers at Universal Studios. We can run ahead if, you, if you're not so burdened. This group came, going a little bit slower than everybody else because of the load that they were carrying. And in this case, they're bringing a paralyzed man. Four of them bringing this paralyzed man. Commentators ask questions like this. What's, what's up with the four? Is it symbolic or is it merely practical? Same question a few weeks ago when the bonfire series came up with 1 Samuel 17, David confronts Goliath, right? Nine foot nine, big robocop armor. He's got a helmet, but he's got no visor. So what does David do? Gets a slingshot, goes down to the creek, and picks five rocks, five stones. Remember that story? Why did he pick five? Some of the rabbis say, well, it's spiritual, you see. It's one for every book of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, and the others. Others say, no, no, no. I mean, come on. What if he misses? It's practical. Same question here. Why are there four? Some commentators say it's symbolic, one for every four Gospels. Others say, no, come on. They're carrying this paralyzed guy on a mat. You need four. If you have three, the corner will drop, and the guy's going to fall, and he's going to break his arm. He's already paralyzed. Give him a break. So anyway, you, you vacillate between the spiritual and the, the practical. But you know, there's a bigger obstacle here. They get to the house, and they're a little late. Every able-bodied person's there, and they can't get in. And you're going to face these kinds of challenges in your life of discipleship. There's going to be obstacles, and you're going to be tempted to say, you know what, I tried, but couldn't overcome it. I'm just going to go home, gonna turn around and go elsewhere. I'm glad this morning that we've got four guys that do not do this. Next line, look what they do. Cue it up. They could not bring their friend to Jesus because of the crowd, and so they went up. They removed the roof, and having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralyzed guy was laying. How would you feel? A bunch of MWCers come up to your front door with ladders and jackhammers. I'd feel insecure, but look at this. Here's some guys who say, we need to get our friend to Jesus. And they're willing to pull out the shovels and wreck somebody's house to do it. Glad it wasn't mine, but that is pretty impressive. Lowering them down right in the middle of the room in this packed house in Capernaum. Next slide, look at this. Jesus saw this, and he was impressed. He saw their faith. He saw their tenacity. And he looks at the paralytic guy and says, Son, which is a familial term of endearment, meaning I know you, know your credit card number, know all about you, son, your sins are forgiven. Put yourself in the shoes, not particularly well used, of the paralytic guy. 
What are you really hoping to hear? Your sins are forgiven, or do you really want to hear, get up and walk, just like everybody in chapter 1? Come on. Don't lie to me. Your sins are forgiven. If you had to pick between the two, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven, where are you at right now, and what would you pick? Because this is the key question of chapter 2 this morning. Next slide. You see, the place is sold out, but not everybody's a Wren Collective fan. Oh no, there's some naysayers, there's the scribes, there's the overseers, the guardians of the faith, ramrod stiff with righteous rectitude, and they're sitting there saying, wait a minute here, this guy's speaking words that seem to be illegal. Next screen. You see, this guy's guilty of blasphemy. Anytime you insult, usurp, take the place of, insult, or say mean things about the name of God, you're guilty of blasphemy. And I'm looking at Leviticus 24. The penalty for blasphemy is you get stoned with rocks. <laughs> Pretty serious stuff. This is the death penalty. And that's what they're essentially willing to accuse Jesus of. Blasphemy that leads to stoning. No one's getting stoned this morning at MWC. I can tell you that. Here's an irony. Jesus read their minds. See that? They're accusing him of being, doing things that are like God, yet he can read minds, which only God can do. So, better than the mentalist. He knew full well what was going on and said, why, why are you having this inner debate next screen? I mean, think about it. You know, what's easier? to say your sins are forgiven, which kind of anybody can do and you can't prove, or to say, rise up and walk. It's easier, of course, to say your sins are forgiven. The miracle is going to require this thing that not many people can do, let's face it. But I want to teach you something today, Jesus says in Capernaum and Mark 2. We all think in Capernaum, that physical well-being is kind of the ultimate human aspiration and achievement. And Jesus is saying, it's not. You've got deeper needs. In fact, often an outer sickness is emblematic of a cancer that you've got deep down. And here's something everybody needs. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to have your burden lifted. You need to have your debt paid. You need to get out of jail. You need... To come through the waters of the Red Sea. But I'm going to prove something to you, Jesus says. Next screen. I want you to know that the Son of Man, and yes, Jesus says, I'm quoting from Daniel 7, this guy who comes with uncommon authority more than any of the other kings of the earth or rulers of this age. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turned to the paralytic guy and he said, get up, take your mat, and why don't you go home? Now, he said that, but did it happen? Next screen, we'll find out. Because if it did, this could change your life. The guy stood up, took up his mat, and went out before all of them. They were all amazed. They glorified God. And they said, we've never seen a show like this. I mean, this guy says it, and it happens. Just like Genesis 1. God speaks, you get new worlds. Jesus speaks, you get new life. Worship team, start coming forward. 
Do your fidgeting behind me, because I got one more point here. Worship team, come for, yeah, I love having the authority, yeah, you see, that's why you trust the scriptures and not in yourself. <laughs> you know, it wasn't supposed to end that way, it wasn't scripted like that, but I'm going to tell you something. This is, a, this, is a, this is a great story, because we all need forgiveness desperately. But you know, glancing through, there's some unsung heroes, isn't there? I think we'd have a story quite with this sort of ending without those four guys. One more question. Who's four guys? What are their names? At last count, there's thousands of names in the Bible. What are the names of these four guys? We don't know. And what does that mean in the economy of Mark's gospel? They're anonymous characters because they stand for something. They are representatives of every believer. That's what Mark is saying to us. You can be one of those four guys. You can bring people to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's going to be hard, and it's going to require commitment. But if you work collectively, you'd be surprised what you can do. And if you're willing to be creative, do you get the three C's? If you're willing to be creative, you would be surprised at the kind of lives that a place like this could transform. Amen? Father, you're good to us. You give us your word. You give us good news. Give us the courage to believe and to implement your story in our lives today. Amen. Praise God. Baron.